Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the latest news and a weird story of the week. Then they will interview Tiffany Stevens, CEO and president of JVC. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCK Online. And I am joined by... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. First topic on our agenda is it's Fashion Week, or Fashion Week was earlier this week. It ended on September 11th. Those of you who are listening and have followed the coverage, our senior editor, Emily Vesselin, has done a great job covering some of the bigger jewelry stories we saw Emily did a really great story earlier in the week on the best jewelry so far. It ran on the 9th, and she covered five key designers that really had a prominent jewelry element to their shows. I mean, of course, these are all fashion designers, and I think historically, jewelry has been very marginal and completely marginalized at these events because, of course, they want to focus on the pieces. And also, you know, it has to be big jewelry. There's no way to see the jewelry otherwise walking down when you know, these models are walking down the runway. How else do you see the jewelry unless it's voluminous? So, you know, often if we do see jewelry, it tends to be costume, very, very fashion jewelry, nothing super fine. Although I think this year we saw a little twist. Some of the takeaways that Emily has pinpointed is that there was a kind of a strong 60s, 70s sculptural design trend that's resurfaced. She saw that at Marc Jacobs. She called it out as early David Yurman, kind of NYC sculptor, artist, turned jeweler pieces. So maybe like Robert Lee Morris, these sort of silver sculptural pieces. There were some images that she featured on our Instagram feed, on JCK's feed, and on the stories that really captured that. They were big. They were craft-inspired, but very striking. She felt, and I'm going to read this point blank from an email she sent me was that there's this feeling this season that fashion designers are finally finding out in all caps about the work of jewelry designers we've all known and loved for years. They're acknowledging jewelry design and craft in a huge way. It's not an afterthought, you know? And that's kind of exciting because uh, like, as I just said, we've tended to see fashion shows put jewelry as a real afterthought or a real, you know, there really often is no jewelry on these models. So to see it, appear in a big way. We saw Ula Johnson, who's a real fashion kind of editor darling, pair her models with Grain Morton, pieces by Grain Morton, which is a UK company that does these beautiful sculptural, almost kind of found object, chandelier type earrings and necklaces with lots of dangling bits and pearls and buttons and all kinds of beautiful stones and tumbled rocks and things. She's kind of a bohemian designer, Ula Johnson. And so that looked really great. And then another designer I called Brandon Maxwell, who Emily featured in her story that ran on JCK Online. My God, these models wearing these incredible denim outfits, just super sexy, you know, kind of head to toe denim, dolled up in really big colored stone pieces and lots of chains, lots of amazing chains, which I think is a real takeaway for this season, this fall, heading into 2020. Lots of cool, chunky chains with dangling bits on them. And if you haven't seen these pieces, please look on our website to check out the story because they looked amazing. Yeah, I I remember one of the podcasts I did with Emily. She was saying that she thinks the big looks are a a trend. And she, in a way, thought it was kind of a 
female empowerment trend in that people were having these big looks and it was kind of like a sign that I've arrived or that I want to make a statement. I think that's fair. I think there's a lot of that obviously in the air. And as we head into 2020 in a political election year, I don't expect that will in any way lessen. I think that'll only intensify this idea of female empowerment. It's also, there's a lot of talk these days about jewelry as armor, jewelry as a protective shield. So clearly the bigger, the better in that sense. You know, I think still when you talk to retailers across the country, not necessarily in fashion hotspots like LA and New York, you find that it's really the things that sell are smaller, daintier, layerable, you know, and so there is constantly this disconnect between what do we see on the runways, on the catwalks, what do we see in the fashion magazines versus what we see actually selling in store. I don't know if that'll ever go away. I mean, the things that we see on catwalks and in magazines have to be big in order to stand out. You can't really make much of an impression at all with something that is a dainty little pendant or sweet little hoop earrings. Are there any jewelry-specific parts of Fashion Week? No, not that I know of. There is a new NYC Jewelry Week that's coming up in November. But as far as I know, Fashion Week does not have a dedicated jewelry component, which is why I think Jewelry Night Out sprung up. Um, You know, it was a way to kind of plant the flag for jewelry at a time when lots of people are in the city thinking about fashion. But they still seem, you know, fundamentally like different industries to me and different communities that do have some nice overlap. I don't know, if, again, if that'll ever change either. One of the differences I've always heard is that fashion turns around so quick and jewelry doesn't necessarily. Like jewelry, uh, the trends take a little bit longer to play out because people don't buy jewelry that much. Yeah, you know, that category fast fashion, the H&Ms of the world, that exists in jewelry, but not at the level of jewelry we tend to occupy. It's not fine jewelry that's going to be manufactured and mass produced quite like that. Most fine jewelers that I know really resist the word trend. I mean, they get feel a little insulted when I ask them, so are you doing anything? What's what's your trendiest piece right now? I feel like a lot of them resist that and deny it and say, I'm sorry, I don't make trendy pieces. I make classic pieces that, you know, follow a, an artistic bent that I've been nurturing all these years or or however they they say it. Naturally, you know, if you're selling something that's five or 10 or 20 grand, it can't be ephemeral in the way that the latest jean style is. The big takeaway I think is big hoops, lots of big hoops, the single earring trend. I think we still see that kind of drapey long earring on a single ear. Although Emily did say she asked on Instagram, she did a kind of a poll on her story and asked if the look would work in real life. And 65% said no, a resounding no. So Again, this constant divide between what we appreciate as spectators versus what we actually want to wear in our own lives. And I think the big takeaway is lots of great chains. There's a hashtag that we've seen pop up, neck mess, hashtag neck mess, that, you know, is again, that more is more look. And I love cycling between. I mean, I, I've heard some rumblings that the 90s are coming back, and that's always I, I don't know if that was jewelry's best era because it was sort of the grunge era and it was more minimal. And so I'm not sure that jewelers should be excited about it. But there's also the flip side, which is the maximalist, more is more kind of Tony Duquette look. And I love it because it's just so much fun and there's so much to say about it. Yeah, you talked about grunge era. And I'm mm-hmm. 
trying to remember, it was a little long time ago, but was there a grunge era jewelry? That was not a big time for jewelry, right? Because the whole idea was that you just wear a flannel shirt and be a slob. I think the tin cup necklace was, and so this is not a grunge jewelry trend, but it was sort of, I guess, contemporaneous with it. You know, there was an era where the tin cup pearl necklace was very popular, uh, popularized by that movie, Tin Cup. If you search Tin Cup, Renee Riso necklace comes right up. Grunge jewelry, I think it was a, a kind of a sad time for fine jewelry. So I don't know how jewelers will remake it. I think there was a lot of plastic jewelry then. I think it wasn't, you know, flannel does not lend itself to diamonds and platinum. There's probably a way to reinterpret it that feels fresh. And I suppose that's what happens when eras come back. You know, there's a dash of the modern in there too. Grunge is back. Trade wars are back. And that's <laughs> that's not a, a flashback from the 90s. I think it's a flashback from the 20s and 30s. But obviously we have very substantial trade hostilities with China. There's 15% tariffs put on the first day of September. And that covers a lot of jewelry products. There was a lot of products that were at the last minute exempted because apparently the president and the administration did not want to ruin Christmas, but he left the tariffs on the jewelry products, so maybe he's not so worried about ruining jewelers' Christmases. And I think actually a lot of people were very upset and disappointed about that. I mean, I've been talking to a few people over the last week. Some people are not that affected at all. Certainly a lot of the big manufacturers say they're doing okay. But it's, uh, to a lot of people, it's chaos, and they don't know what to do. People really don't understand exactly how it works, how the tariffs work, how manufacturers are going to pass them on. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, people say, well, just don't buy from China. When you look at it, like so many things come from China, right? Like the, the boxes and elements of certain watches and certain uh, jewelry products. So there's kind of like a lot of random things that are produced in China that all of a sudden you have to deal with these steep price increases on. 15% is a, is a substantial price increase, especially, you know, margins are not very big. So when you're talking about a retailer margin or a manufacturer margin, that, that really kind of kills it. Have you heard people talking about raising their own prices? What I guess is confusing everybody is how do you report this? Because let's say a, a manufacturer wants to build, uh, take some of the cost of profit of the tariff, right, and build it into his own cost, right, and eat some of the, the cost of the tariff. So that's okay. So so they may say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna lower our prices, or we're gonna we're gonna agree to subsidize part of the tariffs, but they don't necessarily want to do it all. So uh, there was one example I was given of a manufacturer said, okay, because of the tariffs we're going to raise our prices 5% across the board. But the jewelers didn't necessarily understand like how much of this person's products were made in China, right? right. Because it's like, okay, so so what was made in China and what wasn't made in China and how is this 5% across the board increase? Like how is it being reflected? Like how is it being calculated? You know, it's 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 going to be a big problem because people don't necessarily understand and it's also, I mean, if you think that, I mean, clearly the price is certain products are going to go up. And for the, the trade, it's a bit of a double whammy because gold prices are also heading up in a huge, huge way. Right. This is right at the time when people are stocking up for fourth quarter. I think people are, are just very confused. They don't understand what's going to happen, especially with 
stock balancing, right? Like, how do you say, if you have to give something back, like, how do you negotiate this tariff? Who pays it? Because, you know, you're, you're paying it to the government. So, like, does the, does the retailer get it back or does the manufacturer get it back? So I, I think it's something that, that people are having a, a tough time dealing with. There's certainly reports of Chinese companies who are starting to ship from Hong Kong and stuff like that. Obviously, if they're, if they're not doing that in an above-board way, they certainly risk certain legal uh, ramifications if you do that, if you're basically being dishonest about it. You know, Signet, they mentioned that they, they are trying to reduce their exposure to China, mm, perhaps wow. move some of their product production to Thailand, but it's not clear if Thailand has the complete capacity to overnight take everything that, that China did. You know, we, we get a lot of comments, just don't, again, don't buy from China. And, you know, I understand there's a lot of different opinions about the trade war, and I, I certainly don't want to get political. I mean, people might think it's the, it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, or they, they may not like the way it's being handled, because it's certainly, once you follow in a day-to-day way, you realize that there, there's really not much of a strategy. It does not seem that the bees, that there's like an overarching strategy. It seems to be kind of the whims of... Uh, of certain people, but I think what people don't understand is that it's it's definitely going to hurt people, and it's going to hurt our industry, right? And and you know whether you think it's 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 worth the hurt or not worth the hurt. I mean, you don't have wars without casualties, and Charming Charlie, which is one of the retailers that just went Chapter Eleven, just eventually decided to liquidate. They mentioned tariffs in their filing, in their bankruptcy filing. Now, obviously, they had a lot of other problems, but, you know, it does show that this is going to have an effect. And I think, again, a lot of people were upset that, you know, the, the tariffs were taken off these other things and not necessarily jewelry. But, you know, at least that was some kind of relief for the industry because, you know, jewelry is, as we know, is a discretionary item. And if people are paying 15% more for TVs and air conditioners and all these things that they think yeah. are necessities, even though they're not necessities, but they're they're more of a necessity than jewelry, you know, they're not going to have much of a budget left for jewelry because, you know, wages are stagnant. And it's just so so at least that kind of gives a little bit of relief and will hopefully help this Christmas season. But I think it's pretty clear we're going to see increased prices, you know, unless this ends tomorrow, which is certainly possible. It's going to be a huge factor in the next coming months. I'd love to know because, like, you know, people say buy American made, make it all here. And yet it's like, well, what about Chinese freshwater pearls? You can't make everything in America. It's not feasible. Very few industry. Well, you know, the watch industry is another one here that I think is beholden to Chinese manufacturers because there's parts in the Swiss watch industry, for that matter, you know, would crumble without China because so many of those parts are made in China whether they're assembled here in Switzerland, you know, they still need those things. And, you know, makers of freshwater pearls, well, you know, we don't have an industry here. So I think there are certain sectors that are going to be harder hit than others. And it is true. And all on the brink of another election year. So speaking of change. Yes. uh, So those of you who read our website and tune in may have seen a story that Rob wrote in August. It came out on the heels of an announcement that JCK is changing its print frequency for 2020 and also strengthening its digital presence. And we just wanted to chat about that quickly and make sure everybody understood the, the thinking behind it, the rationale, and 
and what will actually be happening. So basically next year, we're going to go down to four print issues a year as opposed to seven. We're eliminating the January-February issue, the November-December issue, and the post-show July-August issue in favor of basically keeping a spring issue that's going to come out in early March, around March 1, pre-show issue that's going to basically be the same thing as our traditional May issue. It's going to cover fashion and style and will gear us up for show week at JCK in Las Vegas. The show issue itself, which will be more or less the same as our typical standard June issue. And then the fourth and final issue of the year will be a fall kind of holiday preview issue that will take the place of our September, October issue. So four print issues a year, continued increased focus on digital, including this very podcast you're listening to, the Jewelry District, webinars, lots more coverage online. So not not a huge change, really, in the grand scheme of things, but something that I think a lot of people who understand the way that the publishing world is going will not be surprised to hear. You know, there's a lot of a lot of magazines have ceased print operations entirely and are are 100% digital. So we'll keep our foot in print for as long as we can and beef up everything else. Since I think a lot of you who listen to us and who read us online may not even get print. I think there's a lot of readers who really just rely on us online anyway, because of course our print issues end up there anyways. Rob, any, any thoughts or any feedback? You know, I, I mean, people have all sorts of different opinions about the future of print, but you know, a great magazine is amazing. And, you know, if I can just give a plug to the upcoming 150th anniversary issue that's Yay. coming up, just the PDFs are, are look so amazing. And, I, and it's something that it seems like it would not work as well on the web, right? Just because the, the, the collective impact of it as, as a printing, I mean, it's kind of like a, a coffee table type. I mean, I... I almost want to buy a coffee table so I can put it on there. <laughs> it's something that I think the collective impact of that works better in print. So, you know, maybe, you know, whatever happens, nobody know, knows exactly what's going to happen with print. But, you know, I do think there's a certain value to it. And I, I hope people still see a certain value to it. Right. Looking through all our 150 years worth of archives, if, that, if there was any takeaway, it was, thank God those print issues exist. Even though it's it would be easier if they were digitized, they'd also, I mean, years from now, will we have the equipment to open these files? Will somebody have these files available? How will future generations find them? I mean, if, if they're kept in some archive, they anybody can access them in person, you know? I mean, there's a limitation to a degree, but there's no question that they're readable. Right. So do you want to do the weird story of the week? I'm all, this is maybe, you know, the thing I look forward to most in this podcast. So this is from a variety of sources. I got this from the New York Post and from, I think, the Daily Mail. A dairy farmer in Singapore proposed to his girlfriend by sliding a diamond ring onto a cow's udder. <laughs> Gross. A detached udder? Like no, no, no. It was like a real cow's udder. Like it was there. I, 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 yeah, it was, a, it was a live cow. So the, the couple shared the shot on Facebook, where it was picked up by a group called That's It, I'm Ring Shaming, <laughs> which I'm, I'm actually a member of that group. On, it's like, on Facebook? Yeah, okay, yeah. Facebook it's, it's this weird group of people who make fun of rings all day. That's like the, the thing. It's like, that's it, I'm ring shaming. Like, I, if somebody, wow. I guess, 
feels they 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 reach the end of the line and they just have to start ring shaming. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's almost more of a weird story to me than the cow. Uh, try, you know, so many stories are generated by this group. It, it's amazing. Said the poster on this group, if my eyeballs are forced to suffer through this nonsense, I'm dragging everyone down with me. <laughs> Followers of the 18,000 member group were not <sighs> impressed by the proposal and said that wedging a ring on a cow's udder was practically animal abuse. It's not great. I'm sure the cow is not psyched to have I think a it ring. It depends. Was it pinching the earth? There was any pinch going uh, on. Short. Well, others wondered how big the woman's finger must be if she could sport an engagement ring that could fit on an udder. But I most mean... made bad puns. One said, How dare he? How dare he? <laughs> Another said he was trying to milk the proposal. Terrible. I guess the question I have, aside from the ring size question, is like, how was this being set up? Was the woman going to milk the cow and all of a sudden see the ring? And that was kind of like the big surprise. I suppose, you know, maybe they're a couple that, that milks together. Yeah. And they say, Hey, Hey, you know, why don't you go milk? And then all of a sudden she sees the ring and it's a big emotional moment. And do we know if she said yes? More importantly, well, we do not know that. No, but, uh, but since it was posted on Facebook, you assume that she said yeah. yes, right? Because yeah. otherwise you'd feel really stupid. <laughs> they they seem to be an unusual couple. What an utterly amazing story. Uh, uh, yes, oh that was, that pun came up too. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite moving as they say. <laughs> If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the show. We have here with us in our studio, um, Tiffany Stevens, who's the president, CEO, and general counsel of the Jewelers Vigilance Committee. And you've been doing it over two years, right? Just, yeah, two and a half years now. Two and a half years. And you worked for a while at Bear Stearns. I did. And then you worked at the Sohn Conference Foundation, which funds pediatric cancer research and medical fellowships. That's right. Then I assume you hadn't heard of the JVC before you got involved. <laughs> I'm sorry to say I, I had not. When they approached you, what was your kind of reaction to it? I was intrigued. It was definitely different than some of the other things I was looking at. I was aiming to stay, or I thought I was going to stay in the philanthropy field, but I was intrigued. It combined a couple of different things. So the combination of the legal side of things, of course, and the artistic side of things with the jewelry as, as sort of pieces of art and the family, small businesses, the scientific aspect. I just really was intrigued by the the heady mix of all the things that the jewelry industry has. Were you a jewelry wearer? Did you go out and buy it and gift it or were sure, you? Sure, yes. So when I was a little girl, my mom always teased me like throughout my life because almost every time we left to go to the grocery store or to do any kind of chores, I'd have on my little shorts and shirt or little kid toddler outfit. And she'd say, okay, we're going to get in the car. And I'd run to my room and put on every single piece of plastic jewelry that I had and then run to her room and try to grab everything I could off of her counter 
and say, I'm ready to go. Let's go out and have on my little casual kid outfit with every single piece of jewelry piled on that I could find in the house and reach. Oh. So I was an early adapter to being a, a jewelry wearer. And I have also always been someone who has a creative practice. I've been painting for about the last 10 years. When I was in college, I went through a phase where I took uh, studio art classes in metal design for two years. So I learned how to cast and set stones and do a bunch of other things. And then I moved on from that thinking that, you know, it would never be relevant to my life again. But it's certainly something that informs my respect for the people that we work with and represent now. You know, what's weird is your predecessor, Cecilia, when she was a U.S. attorney, she won two awards for cases that she prosecuted, and both were jewelry related. Oh, really? I didn't realize yeah, which that. Yeah, it's also maybe perhaps foreshadowing. Fate. Yeah. Yes. You want to tell us a little bit about the JVC? It's 104 years old. Uh, I think we'll be 104 in 2020. So we're in our 103rd year right now. Uh, we were founded for jewelers by jewelers. And today we're sitting down at the tip of the island on Manhattan. And we were founded just around here uh, back in 1917, although now we're uh, up in Midtown near the UN. The organization has covered a lot of different issues over its history uh, in tandem with whatever's going on in the jewelry industry. So our mission is to help all of those along the supply chain with any kind of compliance issues that they might be having. And that might sound pretty dry (laughs) when I say it like that, but we find it to be incredibly fascinating. And we have to work hard to make sure that we keep our focus narrow enough to achieve our objectives because there are so many different things we could do. And there's so many different things people come to us asking about. But we do try to stay focused on a couple of key areas, IP, how to advertise jewelry because we have some really specific rules in our industry, anti-money laundering, and that kind of wears many faces uh, in our industry that we deal with. And then we do some general business things that include employment and contracts and things like that. So my impression, having covered the JVC for a, a long time, is for a while it was it was supposed to be this kind of self-policing organization, I guess, right? That they would I think at one point they actually went in and found people who were misrepresenting right. gold, which is, is is less, I think you do, and now that's kind of moved to, I guess, this uh, mediation practice, correct? Yeah, from my understanding, there were some sort of undercover operations. Right. And I'm sure that we would go there again if we felt like it were needed yeah. uh, in the industry and it were going to be beneficial. But uh, we are not currently doing anything like that. We do our sort of things of that realm are focused on our mediation practice. And we see about 400 cases a year. It's not arbitration. It's voluntary mediation. But we do manage to settle disputes out of court and sort of out of the media between people along the supply chain or between consumers and jewelers all around the country. I'm so curious about of those 400 cases a year, is there are they predominantly IP issues or is there a general bucket that they fall into? Uh, it really varies. It's strange because we're trying to sort of figure out some ways that we can communicate about it better with the broader industry and kind of track some of the these metrics around what exactly is happening. It really varies. I mean, we'll see weird little clusters of things that will come and go. One thing that's happened in the last year that actually had legs under it beyond just our mediation practice is... So, you know, we've all been sort of holding our breath about, well, what happens when the whole lab-grown diamond thing becomes part of the sort of collective consciousness and how will people react to it and what can we do to prepare for that and what should we, how should we be running our businesses to reflect that, which is certainly important. But one thing we started seeing cropping up in our mediation practice was that folks were trading in what they thought were lab-grown diamonds that were actually simulants. 
So we saw some of this sort of fraud happening at that level of the trade, which no one was worried about or anticipating. And some of our lab-grown members came to us with that who had buyback programs. And people, consumers had been duped into who were aspiring to a lab-grown had been duped into buying a simulant. And so we actually have put a lot of effort in our mediation practice towards communicating with those consumers and also with those companies. And we brought it kind of the way that we do our work full circles. We And I haven't mentioned this yet, but we work with a lot of different government entities. We don't lobby per se, but we do a lot of education and communication with all levels of government in the U.S. and even a little bit internationally. And we went to the FTC and told them that this was happening. And when they sent their enforcement letters in April, this was indeed an area that they covered and um, are now aware of. So that was a nice kind of full circle moment for our mediation practice. And how, how do consumers get a hold of you? Like if if somebody has an issue with a a website or an e-tailer, and sure. how do they how do they look you up? And is it free as far as uh, resolving these things? It is extremely low cost. We are putting some guardrails around it for that reason because we are a small staff. So we do go through some effort to decide what we will and won't take on and, and what we advise people to go ahead and hire a lawyer about or what they, you know, we tell them maybe there isn't a claim. Maybe this is just sort of buyer's remorse or whatever. So we do limit it somewhat. But we're all over the internet and all over kind of message boards and stuff because we've been doing this for so long. Another way, I know a lot of people in the trade are listening to this. Another thing that we do is if you see something happening out there in the trade and advertisements, you can contact us directly and we will directly contact that other business who you feel is advertising incorrectly or has some sort of business practice that you think is not ethical or in line with regulations that we all need to be following. And if we agree with you, we will reach out to them directly to educate them and correct it. And if it's not corrected, we will include it as part of our batch of things that we talk to the FTC about uh, every once in a while. You want to talk a little bit about what the State Department is uh, asking of the industry as far as sourcing, as far as uh, some of these meetings they've had. Obviously, the message that we've heard from them is that they want greater controls over all materials. I think most people think that's, you know, we're so far away from that at this point. Right. How serious is that? Do you have a sense of what they really want or what they think is is possible? I agree with you that it does seem a little overwhelming, some of the things that we've been signaled that they are after. I think their point of view, from what I can what I understand in our in our communications with them, is they want to be able to pinpoint malign regimes and make sure that we're not aiding and abetting them by doing business with them via precious metals and precious gemstones and finished jewelry, right? So they're coming at things kind of from that point of view. It's a big topic. I I know that when we first had these meetings this spring, when we realized that the heat was being really turned up on this issue, it was very anxiety producing for all of us and still is. And the big question was, well, what's the policy that's coming And it seems that perhaps there isn't any policy coming, although I could certainly be wrong about that. But we have been signaled, I believe, that there are some existing executive orders that could be used in relation to our industry, or perhaps new executive orders could be issued that would be tools that could be used. And obviously, that's not a collaborative process. And that's certainly something that this administration has done in other realms. We'll see. Maybe it is a policy that's coming. But executive orders do seem to be a little bit more likely. 
that being said, that's kind of like what will happen next. And it's easy to feel overwhelmed by this, what feels like a very big ask. From where we stand, we would just encourage people to take a step back and think about the fact that there is an existing federal law that we're all under pretty much everybody in the industry with rare exception of having an active AML program under the Patriot Act. That's been true for about 15 years now. And you definitely should have a program and you should test it periodically, which we interpret to be once a year. That's going to put you in good standing as far as we know now. So that's definitely, if you haven't done that, that is definitely the place to start. And you want to make sure that that's nice and fresh. And that's going to serve you well in this topic. And it's also going to serve you well if your bank calls and wants this information, which banks are under ever-increasing scrutiny on AML, which is why they turn around to their clients, particularly their high-risk clients, such as folks in our industry, and ask for this kind of documentation. And it's just a smart thing to do. And it's something that you kind of should have already been doing for a really long time. When you do your test, you can test even more transactions. Make sure that if you're running names through your, you know, of course, you will be running names through the OFAC list as part of your program. Just maybe do it a few more times a year or pick a few more names. You know, you can always just step it up a little bit. Another thing that we have been signaled both in the meeting in the springtime as well as at the event in D.C. this in August was that suspicious activity reports aren't really filed by our industry, which kind of makes sense given the nature of trust and relationship in the culture of our industry, frankly. Do you want to talk a little bit about what a suspicious activity report is? Sure. So a suspicious activity report is just a piece of paperwork that you can file if something sort of, for lack of a better term, like fishy is happening in your business or someone approaches a customer or supplier, something seems off. You wouldn't necessarily do business with that person, right? No, it doesn't have to be. So you could say, a sketchy guy approached me. Right. And, and you would an just file with right. the An 18-year-old I've never seen before walked in with a million dollars in cash and wanted to buy X number of Rolexes from me. Right. I mean, that right. would be a good example. And I turned them away because they didn't have any ID. Like, that's an, an interesting example of a um, transaction that wasn't completed, to your great point, but that you might want to file a suspicious activity report about. Um, basically, this goes into a database and it just helps law enforcement connect the dots if they start seeing a pattern of people doing kind of sketchy things in in a certain area of the country, across the country, or in a similar fact pattern. And it's always, you know, it's always been there as an option, but we have been signaled that the government is taking it more seriously. So that's like a sort of small example of something that you could do to help not only yourself, but just sort of the whole industry show, hey, okay, we heard you. We know you want us to be compliant. We're on your side. We're trying to do this so we don't end up with harsher regulations or executive orders or whatever. I know, but I guess looking at it from their standpoint, right? Okay, let's say you have a suspicious guy come in and you send a report. Like, do all of a sudden, like, federal agents start calling you? I mean, it, no, it no, becomes no. like a big, I think people would be scared. Right. Like, you know, who's going to, you know, am I going to start being interrogated by right. the FBI, you know, because of this? Or? Right. right. That, that, that makes sense. I mean, again, given this sort of nature of our industry that's based on trust, relationships, discretion, it's not the most natural fit. And it, it makes sense that why why this these haven't been filed as frequently. But uh, we certainly don't want anyone to feel freaked out about it. But if something legitimately strange happens, we would encourage you to report it. Do you have any thoughts on what happened this week? where um, the Treasury Department put this uh, right. this Turkish, uh, I think Syrian, um, jewelry company on the list. Um, and it has a million aliases, but you can't really find it online. So it seems like something that was right. very much 
under the radar. How could anybody, you know, maybe obviously if they approach you directly, that's one thing, but chances are this company is not going to approach you directly. Like, right. how could you, is there really a way to avoid dealing with this company? Right. I mean, I think that the tool, you've got to use the tools that we have as a first step. So if you have an AML program, then you're running names through the OFAC list. That company is now on the OFAC list and its aliases are as well. So you would catch that if you had a program. But yeah, I mean, the world is a large and strange place. You can't live your life perfectly. Uh, no one can, but you should be doing the bare minimum, if not more. Let's talk about gold because it's kind of a become a hot topic. If you're a, a smelter, right, I guess they call them now recycler, and somebody comes to you, like, how do you know where that person get that goal? Like, how do you do due diligence on that? Right. I'm, I'm assuming you get all sorts of approaches from all sorts of people all day. And how does that person make sure that it's only from good sources? Yeah. So this is, um, you brought up a great topic. This is the current issue that we are really focusing on at the JVC and something that we will be focusing on for the next several months, if not year or so. We're hoping to produce, we're bringing together a few different folks in the gold community um, to create some, uh, to start a conversation, continue a conversation and um, develop some best practices around this issue because we do see the AML enforcement probably coming down on gold for the reasons that you just mentioned. And there are some folks out there who are very diligent about doing all kinds of audits, following, you know, obviously like ISO standards and all kinds of other international standards, but also just doing tons of audits, tons of thinking, tons of KYC. So we want to take those folks' approaches and make them available to others and also find ways to talk about them because we anticipate that consumers are going to start asking these questions. Was it last weekend that the New York Times had the gold story on the front page about Apple, but jewelry was mentioned several times and they have that 30-minute um, documentary on Hulu about it. So, you know, we've all been worried again about the diamond questions that, that might come up. But I wouldn't be surprised if this holiday season, your customers also have some questions about, well, where exactly is this gold from? I saw something about illegal mining in Colombia. How do I know that that this isn't part of that? I'm not trying to hurt anybody with my purchases. So I think we need to um, have this sorted internally and also for sort of an external PR type message to consumers as well. But the things you talked about, like auditing and KYC. What's KYC? Know your oh, customer. Ah, okay. Or know your you. counterparty, depending. Doesn't that take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of resources? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, if, if you're a small refiner, that may not be available to you. That's the case. Although I would say, um, you know, that is what doing business in 2019 in this field is. So, the cost of doing business changes throughout the years, and this is an area, uh, this is how we're evolving. What's your sense about how effective all this stuff is, especially like AML? Because I know there are people in this industry who are not good apples. Sure. And they're, they're big players, right? And you would think that they would be flagged, but they're not necessarily. So how effective is all this really if if this stuff still goes on to this extent? I mean, does this AML actually flag stuff? With the role I have, I'm not a nihilist on these, on yeah. these issues. I wouldn't say that folks who are bad apples, particularly big players, are going to get away. With, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that the government has any interest in letting people get away with very much now and into the future. 
so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, I could take a guess. I don't know how effective it is. It does seem like this is, uh, you know, AML, we're not the only ones who live with this. Banking, lots of different kinds of institutions do and lots of different kinds of businesses. So it is something that's part of a healthy business practice. And I can say that. And I can say I know that um, because we do uh, work with people to create programs that there are many, 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 many people in our industry who are doing it. And we're trying to make it easier for people to do. So we're hoping that that more people will do it. So the FTC guides, those are kind of your big thing, right? That's kind of like uh, when they were released, it was kind of like your Super Bowl, right? Uh, <laughs> of uh, jewelry legal enforcement. It was a year ago, right? Or Just, a, yeah, July yeah. 24th of last so summer. So what do you think has been the after effect of those big changes? There was the changes in the diamond yep. thing. There was changes in uh, carat gold. What have you seen that's kind of been a big effect? The biggest sort of um, emotional effect was around diamonds. And there were some really big misinterpretations about what actually happened. Basically, the disclosures you have to make around uh, lab-grown diamonds has remained almost the same. And the modifiers that have been retained that you can use to describe natural diamonds uh, are also pretty much the same. And the word diamond standing alone implies a natural diamond. I would just sort of summarize it like that. And also one other little footnote is that the word synthetic can still be used. It's not in any way outlawed or, or not allowed. There are some restrictions around it. You can't use it in a way that's disparaging, that it, that implies that the product is fake. But other than that, um, it's perfectly fine to keep using it. So that's been the emotional headline. I think there's what's not being talked about that should be is the fact that you talked about gold. Uh, the, there's no floor on gold anymore. Certainly, if you say just gold, you're saying that it's 24 karat. But if you you can you can d describe a fineness down to one carat, and it still be selling one carat gold jewelry. So that is a huge change. There used to be a ten carat floor. So we don't hear as much talk about that yet. But that to us seems like a really really big change. And mirrored, uh, it's the same for silver. Although there's a separate piece of legislation that does protect coins, silver and sterling silver. But otherwise, you can go below 950 on silver as long as you mark the finest. So those are some changes that weren't as emotional and didn't make the headlines and didn't talk about. And then I think the third category that's big is that it's a very, for lack of a better word, busy work category, which is that rhodium plating now has to be disclosed everywhere. So um, if something is rhodium plated, which of course most white gold is, then that is something that you have to mark on everything. So that's sort of a to-do. One of the changes that kind of also was a little puzzling at first was they said, as far as lab-grown disclosures, we are opening it up to different terms, right? They said, or oh, other sure. terms yeah. are, pos yeah. are possible. And yet when they send out those enforcement <laughs> yeah, letters, I know. they said, don't use any other terms, right? You well, try to stick, they, they didn't say don't use any other terms, right. but they said, th they seem to strongly recommend that people uh, stick to this yeah. Uh, I think lab grown, lab created, manufacturer created. Right. So that seemed a little bit of a contradiction, yeah. but it seemed like, hey, just try whatever you want and, you know, we'll figure it out. And then they kind of went back. Yeah. You know, there are some really smart lawyers at the FTC and they are able to deal with nuance in a really intelligent way. But I think as an industry, we need a lot of direction because people are, are you know, doing a lot of things at once and, and need that clarity. Yes. So this uh, in last summer, they created this fourth category of anything that's kind of similar to what we said. And people got creative. 
they did that because they they're as a federal agency, they're always balancing consumer protection against free speech. So they felt that they had narrowed the modifying terms too much in previous guides, and they wanted to give a little bit of more of that free speech breathing room. So the I, I believe that their th- line of thinking was like, okay, let's open this up. But then if anyone sort of steps over the line, we'll kind of slap them down, which they did. Right. Particularly uh, the one that comes to mind is above ground is one that they pointed out in the enforcement letters, right? We, as the nerdy lawyers, try to reduce people's risks as much as we can, although people are certainly welcome to make their own business decisions. And we do advise that you just stick to one of the three, the laboratory-grown, laboratory-created, or manufacturer-created, because that fourth category is a little bit unknown, and some folks are getting slapped down. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor and engineer is Levi Sharp. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Jewelry District.